All too frequently, churches and pastors find their place in the headlines because of sins like sexual impropriety, financial scandal, spiritual abuse, and a litany of other disqualifying and counter-Christian acts. Many of us have read news stories about pastors or church leaders who have sinned in these exact ways. We've listened to podcasts like The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill or Faith on Trial. And we've read investigative journalist reports about denominations covering up sin along the way. Tragically, we see restoration of these same individuals without the smallest sign of repentance. So what do we do with this? Some respond by hiding the problems. They sweep them under the rug cover up the sin, pretend that the issues don't exist at all. For others, an exit from the church seems to be the answer. And it's not just the so-called ex-evangelicals. Catholics, Anglicans, Presbyterians, virtually every Christian tradition deals with these kinds of issues. Others remain in the church, but always with an uneasy suspicion that the problem will come there as well. Some pastors just simply determine pastoral ministry is not for me. A nine to five will keep me from ever making those same errors and I'll never come under the gun. Why risk failing in those same ways? But I want to propose this morning that leaving the church or pastoral ministry on the one hand or covering up the problems in churches on the other hand both fall short of solving the problem. It doesn't do anybody any good to hide the problems because the truth will always out. Your sin will always find you out. It will always catch up to you. Leaving the church doesn't solve the problem either because believe it or not, those same problems show up in virtually every organized community whether it's a local school district or an HOA or a political party or a nonprofit, these problems show up wherever there's an organized community and wherever there's specified leadership. So it's not like you can just run somewhere else and be safe from the problems. I want to propose instead that Christians and particularly pastors, must turn to the scripture to identify pictures of pastoral ministry that will provide guidance for churches and pastors as a corrective to the errors that we see all around us. This is not mind-blowing, is it? Turn to the Bible. That just makes sense, but unfortunately, it's not that common. When we turn to the Bible, it makes sense to look at texts like 1 Timothy or Titus, where there are qualification lists for pastors, and we should certainly look there. But if we look at the wider scope of Scripture, it's surprising how often we find examples of healthy pastoral ministry. They're everywhere, we just have to look for them. And then we have to do the hard work of integrating them into our own churches and pastoral ministry. So for that reason, in Romans 1, 8 through 15, I want us to look at this as a model for healthy pastoral ministry. Gives us seven marks for what a healthy pastoral ministry should look like. Before we jump in, though, I feel like I have to answer this unspoken question. Because most of you are not pastors here. You might be wondering, why are you preaching this sermon to us? 
Can I check out for the rest of the morning? No. The answer is no. Don't check out. It's true that this message is primarily intended for the pastors of this church. Steve, Josh, and myself. We need to carefully consider how we're shepherding this assembly. We need to think about how we're conducting ourselves in the pastoral office. Hopefully, we'll see that some of these marks are there, or at least that all of them are there to some extent. But we need to grow and deepen our commitment to pastoring in these ways. So this is a message for us. But beyond the three pastors here, the sermon is also directly relevant for the guys in our elder development program and for those pursuing uh, seminary education. There are other people in this room who may become pastors someday, and they need a vision for healthy pastoral ministry. But what about the non-pastors in the room? Well, there are many in this room who are not pastors and may never be pastors but who nevertheless take on pastoral roles within the church. So we often talk about mutual shepherding in the way that there are individuals who lead different ministries and they ought to do so in pastoral ways. So whether you teach the children or lead a Bible class or you serve in the nursery or you lead the men's and women's Bible study or you're a greeter, you take on a pastoral function to a certain extent and your vision for that pastoral-like function ought to include these seven marks. But what about the rest of the people in the room? What about those of you who show up, you participate in the life of the church, but you don't lead anything? Well, I want to suggest that even if you never take on a formal leadership role, you need to consider these marks of healthy pastoral ministry so that you can translate them into the life of the church community. So what pastor should be leading in, every church member should be doing in their relationships. So just as we ought to imitate Paul as he's imitating Christ, you should imitate us where we are doing this well in your relationships in this assembly. What's more, in our church structure, it's the vote of the congregation that appoints and removes pastors. So you need to know what to look for in a prospective pastoral candidate. You also need to know how to evaluate us as pastors. Now, Josh and Steve and I try to self-monitor to a degree. And in the office, we regularly talk about how we can improve where we need to grow, where we need to develop as pastors. But we also ask you to give us feedback because you might see areas that we are blind to. That's why we give out surveys before a sabbatical. That's why we have conversations with you. But if you don't know what to look for in a pastor, you won't know what you need in a pastor. So you've got to pay attention here and take note of these seven marks. So now that everybody needs to pay attention, let's jump in. Mark number one, gratitude. Paul opens in verse eight with a declaration of gratitude for the Christians in Rome, in particular for their growing faith. And this declaration of gratitude is not an isolated incident for Paul. It's not like people were surprised to hear him say, I am thankful to God for you. In fact, if you read chapter 16 of Romans, he ends the letter in the same way that he started, but he goes family unit after family unit, identifying aspects of their life in Christ that he's thankful for. For Paul, 
thinking in terms of gratitude is a default setting. He thanks Christians for their ministry, their personal kindness and care, for their friendship in Christ. This is normal, and it ought to be normal among pastors to have gratitude for their church members. Whether it's through hurt that pastors receive from church members, or personal frustration, or the pressures of ministry, or even self-absorption, pastors often fail to see the spiritual growth and commendable lives of the people who are sitting in church Sunday after Sunday. And in unhealthy pastoral environments, gratitude is completely absent among the pastors. It's almost as if the pastors become their own team set against the congregation, instead of being for the congregation and embracing them with joy and gratitude. There's only criticism and condemnation. Now, pastors should not become so fake or free in their expressions of gratitude that they're just giving out thoughtless words. They've gone on chat GPT and asked it to generate a list of 20 nice things to say to somebody who serves in the music ministry. That, that is not what I'm looking for. However, pastors should listen to Diedrich Bonhoeffer's admonition in Life Together. He says this, Pastors should not complain about their congregation, certainly never to other people, but also not to God. Congregations have been, not been entrusted to them in order that they should become accusers of their congregations before God and their fellow human beings. When pastors lose faith in a Christian community in which they have been placed and begin to make accusations against it, they could better examine themselves first to see whether the underlying problem is not their own idealized image, which should be shattered by God. Let such pastors, recognizing their own guilt, make intercession for those charged to their care. Let them do what they have been instructed to do and thank God. That's a strong word. But what I think Bonhoeffer has in mind is people like Paul who thank God for even the most troubling of Christians that they're ministering to. I think he has in mind examples like Moses and Joshua and Samuel who go before God when the people sin and advocate on their behalf instead of complaining to God. So pastors should be marked by gratitude rather than complaint or criticism. In church members, when you look around at your fellow church members, you too should be marked by gratitude for them. God did not intend for pastors to accuse their congregants before God, but to intercede for them in their weakness and to express gratitude to God for where he's growing and changing them. So mark number one of a healthy pastoral ministry is gratitude for the believers. Mark number two, consistent prayer. Consistent prayer. Paul then explains in verses 9 and 10 that he prays regularly for the Christians in Rome. He always mentions them in his prayers. Now this frequency of prayer for other people might be surprising given all of Paul's ministry efforts, all of his self-supporting endeavors, He's got to preach, he's got to work a job, he's got to write letters to Christians across the globe, he's getting arrested and beaten. Where does he find time to pray for Christians? 
It's not out of the norm for Paul. In nearly every Pauline letter, he lets his readers know that he's regularly praying for them. In the hustle and bustle pastoral life and church ministry, pastors can tend to neglect praying for the congregation. And they aren't at fault by themselves because many churches, when they construct the job description for their pastor, the word pray never shows up. So pastors end up speaking to members in council and sermons and passing conversation, but they fail to speak to God on behalf of their church members. But prayer for and with church members is one of the pastor's highest callings. In fact, the very logic of the creation of a diaconal office is so that pastors can give themselves to teaching the word and to prayer. That's convicting. Last year, at this time, I went on sabbatical and I read a biography of the well-known pastor Eugene Peterson. And I was impressed by the kind of pastoral ministry that he carried out. So I started to read every work of his that I could get my hands on. And I was surprised to find over and over in his writing and in people's descriptions of him that he understood his pastoral vocation primarily as a calling to pray for and with his congregation. He believed that one of his greatest callings was to teach his people how to pray and to pray for them. That's not the description of a pastor that we see in so many places. Tragically, many would consider prayer to be a waste of the pastor's time. And maybe that's because for many of us, we believe prayer to be a waste of our own time. But it's an integral aspect of pastoral ministry. So let me ask you, if you looked at my weekly time block schedule and saw zero time dedicated for prayer, would that bother you? If you looked at my weekly time block schedule and saw large portions of my work dedicated to prayer, would that bother you? How would you respond? If, if you showed up during the week and you walked into the office and you saw Josh and Mel and I praying and we didn't pay attention to you when you walked in and you came back half an hour later and we were still praying, would you be upset with us? Would you think prayer is good, but you should do it on your own time? I think, unfortunately, that can be the attitude that many of us have towards pastors in their calling to pray. Do it on your own time. I'll admit that this is one of the most convicting of the marks of a healthy pastoral ministry. We do pray for and with our members regularly. We have our prayer list. We pray through our directory. But at least speaking for myself, I would say that this is a big weakness that needs to be developed and grown in. Because it's very easy for us to convince ourselves that the busyness of church life, studying, counseling, administrative work, other time-sucking responsibilities should have priority over prayer. But that's not the case. Prayer is a vital part of a healthy pastoral ministry, and we need to lean into that calling prioritizing it as essential to our job description and prioritizing it as essential to our life as a church. That's why we have these quarterly prayer gatherings. And I would encourage you, show up to that. Learn how to pray. 
pray with us as we seek to fulfill our pastoral calling to prayer. Mark number three, relational availability. Paul goes on in verse 10 to express his desire to be with the church at Rome. He had prayed to God for an opportunity that at last he might come to Rome to spend time with them. And then at the end of the book, in chapter 16, Paul's extensive greetings to individual families testifies to his personal knowledge and relationship with so many in this church at Rome. Gives witness to Paul's emphasis on relationships as part of his pastoral and apostolic ministry. In short, Paul made himself available to people. Whether it's in Acts or Romans or Philemon, virtually every window we have into Paul's life indicates that he brought together formal teaching with relationships. He didn't view himself as a public speaker, but as an apostle and pastor who was meant to be with the people. Think that this example is an important antidote to the celebrity culture that so often drives the ministry of pastors in our own day. That failure, that desire to have a celebrity pastor is everywhere. And I think Baptist and non-denominational churches are especially susceptible to it. This is why. One of the good things about the Protestant Reformation is that it brought a focus back to the preaching of the word. So in in a church gathering, the main thing, sometimes really the only thing in a service, was communion, the sacrament. Well, when the Protestant Reformation happened, it set the sacrament down and it raised up the preaching. And that was good, but it became twisted when pastors turned preaching into an opportunity just to be public speakers, to gain notoriety, and and to gain this picture of themselves as influencers with a platform. So the very thing, the, the table, that emphasized the unity of the church and the communal belonging in the assembly was displaced by the thing that emphasized the one person in the assembly, the pastor. Well, one of the reasons we have communion every week is to remind you that your reason for being here isn't just to hear me talk from the platform, but to integrate yourself into a Christian community and to participate in Christ. Now, we shouldn't respond by getting rid of preaching on a Sunday. Um, That would make my job easier in one way, but it would eventually backfire. We recognize that some people will join our church or come to us for the first time because they looked at our website and they heard a sermon that they liked. But no one should stay at our church just for the preaching. They should stay for the community of faith and participation in Christ that's often aided through the preaching of the word. But because of our denominational denominational tradition, where we are at in history, and even where we are at culturally, where we adopt all of the functions that celebrities adopt, stage lights and a platform and the Britney mic. We, we have to be extra cautious to avoid the failure of pastoral ministry that turns being a pastor into just a preacher who talks. We need to be relationally available. We need to fold ourselves into the life of the church. Now, because I I think this is so important, I want to talk about ways that I think this provides a corrective. 
this relational availability provides a corrective to many of the errors and unhealthy aspects of pastoral ministry. First, when pastors make themselves relationally available to the congregation, the congregation more easily detects their flaws, their weaknesses, their insecurities, their sins, their quirks, all of the things that make us humans instead of celebrities. It's, not, it's difficult to maintain a flawless cool and charismatic persona when you're sitting down to dinner on the regular with people in the church. Now, we're at an advantage in that Josh and I aren't like beaming with personality in such a way that, you know, we're untouchable because of how awesome we are. But, but I think, even still, we need to emphasize this. And as we look to raise up other pastors, what we should look for is not the most charismatic guy in the room, but someone who knows how to cultivate deep and meaningful relationships and disciple people in non-platform-centric sort of ways. Up close and in person, all of the characteristics that support celebrity melt away. Second, when pastors make themselves relationally available to the congregation, they have to reallocate their time to the people in the church. Not time on social media, not time only writing a sermon. Not time trying to get a speaking gig or a book deal, but time with people. Praying for them, speaking with them, walking through life in them. The result will certainly be less than perfect sermons, less than highly recognizable pastors, but the result will be a community of faith where pastors are with and for the people. Third, when pastors make themselves relationally available to the congregation, the limits of their capacities to engage relationally forces pastors to limit what they're trying to do with the church. Let me explain this. When the whole model is for the pastor just to be a preacher on a stage, the goal then becomes bigger auditoriums and more campuses in better quality audio and bigger screens. More assistance to make the perfect PowerPoints. But when pastors emphasize the relational aspect of ministry, all of those things melt away. It's no longer a performance, but a deeply pastoral work of leading the church members forward towards Christ one little step at a time. Our commitment to, the, to this is one of the reasons that we were happy to buy a building this size. Because guess what? You can only fit a certain number of chairs in here. And Lord willing, our church will continue to grow in number, but Lord willing will also never become blinded by the fantasy that what God wants for us is for us to have a big social media account in multiple services where people know our names. Instead, we want people to know Christ. And one of the ways by do, that we can do that is by emphasizing relationships and making ourselves available. So the major upshot of a de-celebritization of pastoral ministry is that both the pastors and the church becomes healthier as together they become more about their shared life in Christ than about the specific gifting and uniqueness of a pastor. 
more than that, because pastors are human and sinful, when a pastor at this church does sin or fail, or if we find ourselves with an elder who disqualifies himself, the, the influence and the effect on the church will be muted because the whole church wasn't centered on that guy. If we center our church on a guy, we set ourselves up for failure and destruction down the road. So we want to make ourselves available. We want to do this in formal ways, like in our shepherding visits or scheduled meetings or by having things like work and pray day where if you work from home, you can work in the office with us and have lunch with us. But we also want to do this in more organic and less formal ways, like talking with you before and after a service instead of having the holy march down from the study right in time to preach the sermon. We want to have you over into our homes to spend time with us, or in my case, to invite myself into your home, which is my normal practice. We need to shape our lives in a way that will cultivate these relationships, and we need you to participate in that. We need you to open yourself up to being known. I know that can be scary and difficult, especially if you had a church or pastoral experience where you got burned or hurt deeply. The idea of hanging out with a pastor is scary, or maybe it's just something that you've never considered because you've never done it. We're weird, but we're not scary. So let us into your lives. We want to be relationally available. Mark number four, spiritual strengthening. Spiritual strengthening. Paul's main intention in visiting the church at Rome and writing this letter was to impart some spiritual gift to strengthen them. That's what he says in verse 11. Now that phrase is somewhat vague and no one on planet earth agrees as to what he means by imparting a spiritual gift to them. The associations with the gift text in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and Ephesians 5 complicate this, but I want to cut past that and look at his primary objective, regardless of what imparting a spiritual gift means. His primary objective was to strengthen them. In other words, he wanted to come to them so that they would be better off when he left than when he got there. He wanted them to be stronger, better Christians, more faithful Christians. Christians who looked more like Jesus after he left than when he started. As already mentioned, a healthy pastoral ministry has to have this relational atmosphere to it because if our goal as pastors is primarily to strengthen you and no relationship is involved, it will turn you from people into projects. You can see how that can happen. A pastor can say, my goal is to strengthen these people. So every time a person walks into the room, there's a robotic analysis of their strengths and weaknesses. And then it's like analyze and attack and just make them better and get them out the door. Apart from the relational context, this can be really detrimental. Discipleship factories don't work. That's not what we're getting at. But within the context of relationality, the aim of spiritual strengthening is vital to the health of the church. A pastor's goal ought to be to help individual members identify their gifting in Christ, their strengths both in the church and outside of it, their weaknesses where they need to grow, and tactfully and discerningly aid them in that development. In an unhealthy church context, 
pastors view the, uh, the congregation as an opportunity to strengthen the pastors. They look at church members as dollar signs who can increase the bank account. They look at them as followers who will broaden their platform. Those pastors are like shepherds who feed on the sheep, described in Ezekiel 34. But in a healthy church context, the pastors will look for opportunities to strengthen the congregation, to feed the sheep, to lead them to Jesus in imitation of the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. Our aim is to strengthen you, to make you look like Jesus. Our pastoral ministry must never become about us in making us better, but about strengthening you and helping you grow in the image of Christ. Mark number five, mutual encouragement. Mutual encouragement. In verse 12, Paul elaborates on his intent to strengthen the church in terms of mutual encouragement. So he he says, I want to strengthen you. That is, I want to be mutually encouraged both by your faith and mine. So Paul expected that when he arrived at Rome, not only would he encourage them, but he also would be encouraged. I think a pastoral ministry requires the same mindset. Having that mindset of mutual encouragement is actually an expression of humility that recognizes that pastors are not above the community, but part of it. Although pastors do take on a more involved role with greater responsibilities in the assembly, the body metaphor doesn't go away. Pastors are a part of the body of Christ. They are not operating separate from it, but as part of it. Sadly, in some church models, pastors are elevated so far above the average church member that they're untouchable in virtually every way, including encouragement. While that elevation positions pastors to look like they're being strengthened because they've been given unquestionable power within the assembly, all the while, their spiritual muscles atrophy And they lead with the wrong kind of weakness because they're always coming, either focusing on themselves or just giving, and never seeing themselves as part of the body that needs mutual strengthening and encouragement. Now, church members rightly show honor and deference to pastors, but that right mode of interaction sometimes leads church members to believe that they have nothing to offer when it comes to encouraging and strengthening their pastors. So think about it. Have you ever considered that you can spiritually strengthen and encourage the pastors when you interact with them? That might seem weird to you, but you have a role to play in our spiritual good, in our encouragement, and our growth. So if you think that you have nothing to offer when it comes to encouraging and strengthening your pastors, you're wrong. It's not true. If you're a Christian, if you have the Spirit of God in you, then you have something to offer. You have gifting and insight and life from God that can be shared with one another, and yes, even with your pastors. So we want to adopt a mode that promotes mutual encouragement, not just talking at you, but receiving from you. Mark number six, impartial ministry. Impartial ministry. 
Paul then, in verses 13 and 14, goes on to list the kinds of people that he regularly ministered to. Now, when you read that list, those terms probably do nothing for you. Terms like Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish, these things just don't speak our language. But Paul was articulating the different rungs on the social ladder in his society. He essentially lists a whole gamut of humanity, the respectable and the unrespectable, the rich and the poor, the cultured and the uncultured, the religious elites and the pagan despicables, the educated and the non-educated. Paul didn't care about any of these things. He didn't discriminate when it came to his ministry. He ministered to all without partiality. Modern pastors have a lot to learn from Paul in this regard. Although our culture likes to talk about impartiality and even, at least verbally, demonizes discrimination, more often than not, I found that that's just virtue signaling. We still like to show partiality. We still like to connect with the people who are going to make us feel better about ourselves or give us greater social credibility or higher standing. We all live in that world. So what Paul points out is very relevant for us today. At a local church level, the potential for partiality is high and the categories are vast. In some churches, those members who receive favor and attention from pastors are the talented, the wealthy, the cool, the funny, the influential, the highly educated, and in some cases, those who have a particular skin color or social status. The temptation for showing partiality in ministry is high. But it can never make its way into the church because it won't allow us to have a a healthy pastoral ministry. We must avoid the cliques that can form and the unspoken social hierarchy that can form in a church where only certain people can reach the top, where only certain people have the ear of the pastors. Where that is the case, it should not be. Instead, a healthy pastoral ministry is one that should be carried without, without partiality, without favoritism, without showing extra kindness to those who have something to offer. So I want to say to you that if you feel like you have to become a certain kind of person to be able to receive the full pastoral care that we want to offer, it's not true. And if we have shown partiality, please point that out to us. Often, we don't know if we're doing it. I think that's true for you too. You may never intend to show partiality, but someone might point it out to you, and as soon as they do, you see it. We hope that we don't show partiality, but if we do, point it out to us, knowing that we want to correct and change. Mark number seven, gospel proclamation. In the final verse in this section, Paul closes his introductory comments with an expression of eagerness to proclaim the gospel to the church in Rome. Everywhere Paul went, he wanted to proclaim the gospel. And interestingly, he even wants to do so at an established church. This might strike you as odd. Why would Paul's primary agenda or main sense of eagerness be to present the gospel to a group of Christians? It's for this reason. The gospel is for all of life. It's not just for conversion. It's not just for a periodic reminder, but it's actually the thing that governs our entire life as Christians. 
That royal announcement that Jesus is the risen messianic king touches every aspect of our life. So it ought to be the steady diet of pastoral teaching and counseling and discipleship. So a healthy pastoral ministry will keep the proclamation of the gospel central. Not only will this infuse the life-giving message into every aspect of the church, but it will remind us pastors that we're ultimately here to testify to King Jesus and not to make ourselves king. The gospel is for every person, every pastor, every stage of a church's ministry. So in this sermon tried to lay out seven marks of healthy pastoral ministry that, that should be evident here at Resurrection Church. But in closing, I want to make one observation and then give three applications to three different groups of people. One each, not nine total. One observation worth mentioning is that in virtually every podcast I've listened to and every investigative journalism report I've read and in every outside organization's investigation of a church that uh, reveals unhealthy pastoral ministry in harmful church environments, none of them are listing these seven marks as the regular practice of the pastors. If you read the reports, if you listen to the podcast, if you've experienced this, reflect on it. These seven marks are not present. They may have been initially, they may have been at the start, but over time they eroded away and the pastors and churches lost sight of it, often as the church was exploding in growth. I'm not convinced that our church will ever explode in growth and become a massive megachurch overnight. In fact, we pray that will never happen. But even in a small church like ours, in the incremental growth that comes, there can be a tendency to set aside these virtuous ways of pastoring in favor of doing what we think will get the most people in the door. And we can never allow that. And you as church members can never encourage that. So with that in mind, it seems to me that the best way to respond to the reports of unhealthy pastoral ministry and damaging church experiences is never to cover up, nor is it to abandon the church altogether, but to reimagine what church and pastoral ministry should look like using texts like this one. So let me apply it now to our three groups. To the pastors, myself included, And those training to be pastors, we need to consider these things and devote ourselves to them with all the more consistency. We cannot lose sight of them. We need to find ways to regularly evaluate whether or not these marks are present in our lives and characteristic of our ministries. It would be wise for us to consider how we can implement these virtues into our vision of what it means to be a good pastor. We need to figure out how we can make sure we don't stray from this vision. To the church as a whole, although our pastoral calling and responsibility includes more than this, this is the basic metric by which you should measure our fitness for ministry and the success of our ministry as a whole. So so if you are wondering, are our pastors doing a good job? Look to these seven things and see if, we're, if these are characteristic of the way that we operate as pastors. 
Now we have other responsibilities. We have other things we need to be doing. But this should be the mode in which we do them. And if you see weaknesses or failures in us, please address them in love. You might not feel comfortable having a conversation with the pastor in whom you see the failing, but that's one reason we have multiple pastors, is so that you can talk to the other pastors and point that out. The most loving thing you can do when you see us failing in one of these areas is not to ignore it, is not to avoid it, but to point it out to one of the elders so that it can be addressed, so that we can grow and compensate for our weaknesses. Then to every person here, although I've presented these as marks of healthy pastoral ministry, you might notice that every Christian is actually called to live in this way. Every single Christian is called to live in this way. This is also true of the qualification list for pastoral ministry. The only distinction between pastors and every other Christian is the requirement to be able to teach. Okay, and even that one I'm not sure about. Being a pastor is not being a special kind of Christian. Being a pastor is modeling for Christians what every other Christian should be. So you too should adopt these marks for your own Christian life and your relationship and mode of operating in this church. If we can integrate these seven marks into our church at every level, pastors, formal leaders, devoted members, people who happen to show up on a repeating, you know, situation, whether you join or not, we're happy that you're here. Every one of us should adopt these seven marks, and I believe that if we do so, we'll be positioned for faithful and healthy ministry for years to come. But we can only do it by God's grace and through his spirit. So let me pray that God would work in us to make these seven marks evident here. Father, we thank you that you don't leave us on our own to devise our own picture of pastoral ministry or of what a healthy church should look like. We also are grateful to you that you don't leave us on our own to conjure up these marks through our own self-effort, but that you've given us your spirit to transform us, and you've given us Christ as the ultimate example of operating in these ways. So would you open our eyes to see where we fail? And would you give us soft hearts that will be convicted when we see those failures? And would you give us the strength of your spirit to grow and correct them so that we can be a faithful church, so that your name would receive glory whenever anyone encounters members or pastors from Resurrection Church? Would you do this by your grace, for our good, and for your glory? In Christ we pray. Amen.